Welcome to another episode of The Raven Narratives. I'm Tom Yoder. And I'm Sarah Severson, and we're the co-producers of The Raven Narratives. The stories you're about to hear happened at our December 2018 Story Slam at the Sunflower Theater, when the theme was family. Our Story Slams involve willing audience members who get on the stage to tell stories right off the cuff. Our first storyteller of the evening was Ariel Ali Jumbo. So I didn't plan for this, but I am in uniform, so that helps with my story. I came straight from work. Um, I'll be touching on lots of different areas of family. Um, Mostly I'll be honoring my lineage. My mom is a certified nurse midwife, and she started me off young, learning about birth. How many other kids do you know when they're five years old are watching birthing stories in the living room for fun? (laughs) Probably not very many. But it ended up um, inspiring me 20 years later to become a labor and delivery nurse. So I've been a part of many beginnings of families and endings of families. And so my story is kind of just a couple of vignettes um, of different birth stories. Um, My favorite birth story is from a child's perspective. My dad came in really early in the morning and this booming voice, which always scared the hell out of us, was like, get up, your mom's in labor. And we're like, oh my God, okay, we're going. And we drove like hell to get to Shiprock, and all I remember really is like sitting around, like, this is so boring, why is nothing happening? And the pleather chairs in the waiting room, and then finally there's these babies, but they're so small that we could only see them inside their little weird clear box. I'm like, oh, this is kind of cool, like, this is a little scary, do I touch them, do I not touch them, I don't know. And... My mom is totally out of it. Not, I don't even remember if she was there, but my dad's like, okay, well, I got to go. I have to go get on the plane because we're flying to Albuquerque. And my sister and I are like, okay, like, see ya. <laughs> and it was just the most incredibly weird, bizarre way to see a new life. It's just these little humans sitting in a box, like, so I stuck my little hand in there. I'm like, okay, bye, little brother. Bye, little brother. And they both flew on their own separate planes, and off to Albuquerque they went. Um, and that is kind of funny, because now I'm working with some of the doctors who helped bring these babies into the world, and nurses, and they get to tell their side of my brother's birth story. And one nurse that I met the other day was like, oh, it's so fun to meet you. I got to meet your brothers when they were in their birthday suits. <laughs> um, and sometimes starting a family can be hard. I've had a patient who did all the right things. She took all the vitamins, you know, showed up at all of her appointments. She even went to the specialist and she came back to us and 
we couldn't find a heartbeat. But she was at the point where she still had to deliver. So I had the distinct pleasure of working with her through the process of laboring. Um, and that is humbling. Humans look weird when they're not fully formed. And it came out purple and lost its poor little head. But we still wrapped it up and grandma wanted to see, so we showed her. And the mom was so tender. She just had fully moved into acceptance and, you know, maybe part of that was just shock, but she was just, she just looked at me and was like, you know, thanks for being here. And it was the end of my shift and I had already stayed late, so I went home, but families can look so different. They can start and stop for only a couple of weeks. I had one patient who, she was young, high school still, and she was so great. She had gone through this really long, long couple of days labor and ended up in a C-section, and you know she was just kind of acting like such a teenager, like, I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. And the one thing she just loved to do, though, was breastfeed. It was the coolest thing. She's just like looking at her boobs and looking at the baby like this just like works it's so cool <laughs> she's like I don't want to get out of bed but I can do this like I can make milk like he loves it it's just so cool <laughs> so families for me are amazing and I've had so many moments and look forward to so many more of getting to share the beginnings of families. Thank you. Thanks, Ariel, for telling that story. Our next storyteller is Armida Huerta. Well, I'm completely unprepared for this because I found out I was coming this afternoon. <laughs> um, so, let's see. Um, my family is from Mexico, and I'm a first U.S.-born um, line of my family. So it's my sister and myself and my brother. Uh, we were all born in San Francisco on Gary Street in Kaiser. It's still there. Um, and the um, awesome thing about being born of um, a family that is not from where you're living or from where you're born, for me, has been um, this experience of knowing who you are and at the same time not knowing who you are 
um, however weird that sounds. It sounds to, it's weird to me. Anyways, um, so as I, was, as I grew up, um, I always felt different. And I know I, I look different from everybody because, you know, I was dark-haired and dark-skinned um, compared to my uh, peers at school. And people would, uh, school friends would run around and say, say something in Spanish, say something in Spanish. And I was horrified and so embarrassed. And I was like, no. And so the more they prompted me to express my difference, the more I realized my difference. And the more I realized my difference, the more I felt isolated. Um, even though, you know, in my, in my household, we, um, we were always told to be proud to be who we were of Mexican descent. Um, there's a saying in, in, in Mexican Spanish that's, um, tienes el nopal en la, en la frente. And so I don't know if any of you have had nopales, but it's basically cactus. And so the translation is you have your, the cactus right there on your forehead. You know, you can't deny who you are. <laughs> and you know, you gotta pull it off. Um, but, uh, you know, that's how I grew up. Like, that's how I was, um, taught to be proud of who I was. Um, and so when I would get home from school, the outside world, I'd go home and um, the door would close behind me and um, the outside world disappeared. I was now in, in um, Mexico, I thought. And so, you know, there was, I lived one way inside the house and I'd open the door and walk out and go and live my life at school and it was a completely different life. I was now American. And so I, I lived this very different life while I was at home and with friends and family and a different life when I was out and about in the world. <clears throat> and so it was, um, it, was, it was interesting to have this dual, almost personality. <laughs> You know, and um, I didn't tell anybody because I don't like drugs, those kind of drugs. Um, and um, so that experience um, made me feel like, you know, I didn't belong. Like, I should be in Mexico. That's where I belong. And, um, and so I ended up, when I was uh, graduated from high school, early 20s, uh, I decided to go and learn Spanish, like the real Spanish from Mexico, not the stuff that I knew that I was learning at home, but it wasn't necessarily the educational level, academic level. And so I went to Mexico, to Guadalajara, to the um, University of Guadalajara to study Spanish and, um, and to live with my aunt, uh, my father's sister. And so while I was there, I remember um, being at the at the bus stop down the street from my my um, aunt's house, and um, this guy was walking by, and he looked at me, and you know I just I didn't know what to do, and and he said, "You're not from here, are you?" And I looked at him, and I said, "No," and so for the first time in my life, who I thought I was, once again, I wasn't. I thought I was more Mexican than I was American, and that's how I felt in the United States. And then when I was in Mexico, I was so not Mexican by just some passerby who didn't, never spoke to me, didn't know who I was, didn't know my name, didn't know what family I belonged to. He just knew 
that I wasn't from there. And so I was like slapped with this reality of, holy shit, where do I belong? Like, I don't belong in the States, and that's where I was born. Always trying to get back to my homeland where I wasn't born <laughs> and, and not belonging there either. So it was very clear to me that I was, you know, it was like, where, where is my belonging? Where is my place? You know, I feel so not part of Mexico and then not part of the United States. So it was this really um, wild experience of questioning, like, who, who am I? Where do I belong? What do I do? How do I walk in this world? And so the more that I um, kind of questioned these and, and pondered these experiences, uh, the more I would dig into, like, what is life all about? You know, what does this mean? And not necessarily in those terms as a young person, because I didn't really have that ability to, to think that way. Um, but the more that I explored, the more um, questions I had. And ultimately, what I came to find was that um, actually there was a cat. <laughs> There's a cat named Jimmy that I couldn't stand because <laughs> where I was living, he would just kind of push his way into the house. And I was just like, you're, you don't even live here. You live next door. I'm like, what are you doing? You know, you're, you're eating the poor cat that lives here, her food. She's 19. Like, she can't defend herself. And she's black, and you're black. And, like, what is this all about? Like, can you disrespect this other person's or this other being's <laughs> home, her, her food and all this? And I thought, well, that, you know, nasty little boy is coming over here and pushing his way around. And so I actually had an energy reading about this. And, um, and so the energy reader I was talking to was like, you know, there's this weird thing happening with this cat next door. His name is Jimmy. And, and like, I'm always scaring him away. And, and he keeps coming back. And he just doesn't get it. He doesn't belong here. And, um, and so she said, hmm. And, uh, She's like, well, how does that make you feel? And then uh, I said, well, he's like always going, like he, he's almost acting like if he belongs everywhere he is. And then she's like, bingo. And I went, oh, I belong anywhere I'm at. So I'm my family. Thank you. Thank you, Armida, for sharing that story. Our next storyteller at the Sunflower Theater, when the theme was family, is Frank Cope. Believe this or not, um, when I was 15, I was in a rock and roll band. And um, I played the bass guitar. Uh, we uh, had a tough time remembering, or not remembering, but trying to figure out what we should call ourselves. And uh, this one guy was hooked on neosinephrine because he had a bad cold or something. So we sort of bastardized that name and came up with Zephyrosinephra. And <laughs> we were the Zephyrosinephra band, and we, we played all over the um, local area of southern Utah and all the high schools. And uh, we, 
we were sort of good, but we had a good thing going because um, where I lived was in Dyna National Park. My parents worked for the Park Service, and across the street was this girl that was uh, friends with a guitar player, and we would jam in our garage, and she'd come over. And the guy that lived up the road was our roadie, and I was only 15 and couldn't drive, so he drove everywhere. So whenever we went any place, we'd talk our parents into uh, lending us their car, and we would, you know, drive around to all our gigs. And uh, the roadie, um, a guy named Larry, would come with us and he'd help, and we'd give him a little bit of money and all that stuff, so it worked out good. The guitar player lived over in a town called Kanab, which was about, I don't know, an hour from where I lived, and it involved driving up the windy road through Zion Park to get to uh, Kanab and back. And uh, we would tag team, we'd play uh, in Kanab in the guitar player's garage and hang out and do things that bands did. And, uh, and the next weekend we'd go down to my house and we'd, you know, jam. And, and uh, the girl next door would come over and we, we were really, you know, living the high life. <laughs> and uh, one time we got this uh, gig over in a bar that was on the border of Utah and Arizona called the Buckskin Tavern. I don't know if any of you have been there. Uh, the longest bar in Arizona, and it was kind of rough and tumble. Just about every cowboy in the whole area was there. And we were a rock and roll band, and we didn't know too many uh, Western country songs, you know, so now that's really beside the point. Uh, the thing is, is that we were underage, and one of our parents had to come with us and sit at the table <laughs> at the side of the bar while we were playing. And um, that led for some interesting times. But anyway, at the end of the uh, gig one night, for some reason, Larry couldn't come on this trip. And he was our driver. Buckskin is, you know, an hour from where I lived. and. We had to get home because we had my parents' car and they didn't know that Larry wasn't with us. And, and uh, after the gig was over, it came down to nobody could drive the car because there was no driver and the two boys from Kanab had to stay there and they couldn't drive back. So the good thing is I learned how to drive when I was about 12 because my dad liked to go hunting and his idea of hunting was to drive around in a pickup with a high-powered rifle with his son driving the car so he could be ready if a deer jumped out. <laughs> Smoked non-stop Mall cigarettes and we drove on every single road in the state of Utah below, below Cedar City anyway. Well, anyhow, I knew how to drive, so what could happen? It's 2 o'clock in the morning. Nobody's going to, you know, pull me over. Uh, so this girl who was uh, living across the street, who was the you know, girlfriend of the guitar player, hopped in the car with me, and down the road we went. Everything was going good. I was driving, you know, making this big impression because I'm 15, and, you know. But I don't have a driver's license. Well, we got down on the first two or three bends in 
Zion Park and it was snowy, it was kind of cold. I drove this 65 Chevy Impala right off the edge of the road down into this deep embankment. You know, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where something has happened to you and it should have killed you, but it didn't and you're actually okay. Sometimes I think you actually passed into a different world. You were actually killed in the old world, but you actually <laughs> are alive in this new world. Well, that's the way I felt. When I woke up, this girl, Jill, I've had the most interesting times with girls named Jill, <laughs> was, laying on top of, was laying on top of me, and we're sideways. And I don't know if you've ever tried to get a door open when it's you know, up here. You just can't do it. So we rolled the window, crawled out of this car at 3 o'clock in the morning, and it was pitch black. And I'm not kidding you. You could not see your hand in front of your face. We didn't have coats. We didn't have a flashlight. It was probably about 20 degrees, chilly and kind of windy. And God, Jill, what are we going to do? And she goes, well, I think that there was this restaurant, and we knew it was, there's up the road about two miles, and we could probably walk up there and get some help. Okay, well, we started walking, and we crawled on the center line for two miles in the middle of the night, and all of this time there were this sounds in the, in the forest like these animals were jumping out and we thought oh my god there are bears there's mountain lions there's you name it I don't think we're gonna make it through this and she kept no we'll we'll get through it just hang tough well we finally get to this restaurant and by now it's four in the morning and the dogs started jumping out and they were just barking rawr, 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 and they were uh, I could see their teeth in the lights of the restaurant just this far from my face because they were like bounding up well a light came on in this one house and a, a guy opened the door and said what on earth is going on and we rapidly told him what was happening and he goes oh don't worry don't worry and we could see that his wife was in the, the house and she got up and threw her bathrobe on and went into the kitchen and in just a minute came out with some hot chocolate. The guy started his car up, his big truck, and got a um, heater going and warmed us up. And in this time, dad came out of another house and said, you're not going to be able to pull these guys out with your truck. So he got in his truck. The two of them hauled us down to the place where the car was and pulled it out and got us up on the road and we were just about in heaven. I told the man, I don't have any money or anything to help, you know, to help you out with, with all your effort. And he goes, you know, you don't have to because what we want more than anything is to have you come and be our friends and be part of the family so that when this happens to us, you will take good care of us too. And I don't know if I have any more time, but I did run into Jill again at a restaurant in my hometown 
When she saw me, her eyebrow raised, didn't say a word, but when I left the restaurant, she winked at me. Thanks, Frank, for telling that story. Our next storyteller at the Sunflower Theater, when the theme was family, is John Kameller. It had been silent for about a minute when my brother spoke. And I could tell his voice had lost all the anger and really the fury that it held just moments before. His voice was quiet and afraid. Um, We'd come home from school and got in an argument that escalated into insults, which became some shoving and quickly drove toward violence. And when he picked up a sawed-off handle of a hockey stick, I went in my room and locked the door. And (laughs) so my brother and I had a bit of a uh, fraught relationship. I told this story at my brother's wedding. Um, I gave it as a toast at my brother's wedding. So we had this kind of fraught relationship, you know, in our tween and teen years. Um, my, my family had some financial trouble, and so both my parents worked um, a lot. And maybe some of the, just the, the general feeling of that kind of leaked into us a little bit. Um, so we, we were at each other's, uh, you know, we were competing for our parents' attention and recognition, really. Um, but my, my brother, my dad and his younger brother had a similar relationship, so probably we were enacting some of that as well. My grandma told me this one time my dad picked his younger brother Pete up like a log that you'd use for a battering ram and put his head through a wall. <laughs> Adulthood has made all those relationships much better. (laughs) So, you know, when he came at me with that hockey stick, I ran into my room and I locked the door because I had a lock on my door. I was the only one of us who had a lock on his door. I locked the door and he stood outside there yelling at me and I taunted him from the other side. So, you know, he's saying, come out here, come out here. I'm going to kick your ass. I'm going to kick your ass. And I heard this, God damn it, bang. And then quiet. <laughs> and then he spoke and he said, hey, John, can you come out here? And I'm like, no way, I'm not going to go out there. I don't, I'm not going to get my head beat in. And he said, no, look, look, I put the hockey stick away. Please come out here. And there was something in his voice. I unlocked my door and I opened it. And I knew right away that it wasn't just Bill that was going to be in trouble for this. Um, in his fury, he had taken that hockey stick and hit the outside panel of my hollow core door and put a hole in it about that big. And I knew (laughs) that my parents weren't going to just blame him. So, you know, we instantly went into team mode. Um, It was, how do we avoid my parents' anger and, more importantly, their discipline measures? Um, I knew we were both going to be grounded for a while. And so we started thinking. And the answer we came up with was, we got to find another door in this house 
where, where this hole is not going to be so visible. Because on the outside of my bedroom door, I'm not putting a poster up there. You know, if it had been the inside of my door, maybe I could have put up a poster, but that wasn't going to work. And we looked at every door in the house, and there was one that fit the bill. And it was the 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 coat closet right in front of the front door uh, in our split level house. So you'd walk in the door and there was a coat closet upstairs, downstairs garage, right? So, all right, we got it. The, the way it was going to work is the, the door, the, the hole would be on the inside. So you wouldn't see it when the door was closed and you walk in the house. And when you open the door, your focus is on what coat you're going to get. So you're likely not going to see this hole right here. <laughs> plan. Awesome. So we take, we take my door off the hinges. We take that door off the hinges. We take that door down to my room and it's this much too tall. <laughs> and so no problem. We run out into the garage. I get out my dad's framing square. I make this nice line. I'd seen, uh, I don't know where I got it, but, but you know, if you put masking tape where you're going to cut something with a skill saw, it keeps the splinters down. So we put masking tape on it, and I made this nice straight cut, cut off the bottom four inches of this door. We got it back. We lucked out because we hadn't checked where the mortises for the hinges, you know, the little recess for the hinges, where they were going to line up. But we did cut the right four inches off that door. <laughs> so we got it all hung up. I put my locking door handle back on the door just in case for the future. And then we took that other door up to the closet, and it's four inches too short. But mom's going to be home really soon, and we're committed now. So <laughs> when I told that story at my brother's wedding, I told it, the moral of the story is that, you know, I told him, look, you're, you're going to rub on each other's nerves, but you've made the choice to be a team. And so when you work together as a team, there's there's not a lot you can't overcome. In fact, Bill and I never got in trouble for that. <laughs> when, when my uncle Pete laughs, when he really, really belly laughs, he sounds like a harbor seal barking. <laughs> and when that finally subsided and quiet fell over the room, I heard my dad say, I always wondered why that door was so short. <laughs> Thanks, John, for sharing that story with us. Our next storyteller at the Sunflower Theater was Paul Coops. My dad died about two years ago. He died on December 12, uh, 12, 12, at about 12 o'clock in the afternoon. He was 104 years old, and uh, he lived to be a ripe old man and uh, you, conscious to the very end almost except for the last couple of months after a stroke and he was he was kind of renowned as a storyteller he actually has a book published that nobody will ever read because it's well he self-published it because nobody really wanted to buy it because they're family stories you know and um his stories were were all real personal and family 
And uh, we all heard them about a hundred times before we ever saw them in print. And uh, it used to really make my mom really mad because he always had to have a moral to the story. And, you know, we were intensely religious growing up. And, well, he was intensely really religious when he died, I guess. But, you know, the moral of the story, we just got really sick of that. And my mom hated it. Just let the story stand. So tonight I'm going to tell you a story that has no moral. Okay. <laughs> My dad would love the story, except that he would find a moral in it. So my brother was a, uh, I have three brothers. The one right above me and I are pretty close. So my brother Glenn was an inventor, uh, always curious, always playing around with stuff, always trying weird shit. And uh, we grew up outside of Gallup in checkerboard country um, on, a, on, a, on a mission compound. And so we had free reign of about 600 acres, including a mountain range. And we could go into the, all the schools because my dad was the head of the school. And they would do really cool stuff, my older brothers. And I just went along for the fun, you know. It's like, wow, cool. You know, we're doing this really weird stuff. They would inflate, you know, long, um, dry cleaning bags and float them up into the air with natural gas and then shoot at them with a 22 and all really cool stuff, you know. It's like, wow, we're doing science. Uh, and my brother, Glenn, was just like, he was like on this, you know, building go-karts out of gas-powered washing machine engines, whoever knew those existed. Well, one day, one day they're drilling a new well in town, in, in, on, on the campus, and uh, um, it, this well has to go down, you know, in Gallup, there's no water. And uh, this is, I don't know, 1,000 feet, 1,500 feet, 3,000 feet, 6,000 feet, I don't know. The, the water is way the hell down there. And uh, they had to just keep drilling and drilling and drilling. And occasionally they would drop dry ice down there to try to clear things out. And uh, so we figured out where they were drilling because it was just like 300 yards behind the house. And we started copping some of that dry ice. Dry ice is really cool. And I was a little kid and my brothers were, you know, oh, don't, don't touch it. Don't, you know, you'll burn yourself. And so we got all this dry ice and my brother Glenn was like, well, what can we do with this? Um... I know. Let's put it in a Coke bottle and then cap it and see what happens. So we, he puts it in a bottle and he tells me, of course, take it over there because I don't know what's going to happen. So I run over there and put it down and we stand there and watch it for a while and nothing happens. And he says, go over there and look at it. So I would go over there. I'd say, well, there's nothing happening, Glenn. And he'd say, oh, well, let's go get out the gun and shoot it. So Glenn goes upstairs and we get the gun, you know, because guns, you know, cool. And I think it was actually a pellet gun, not the 22, because I think the parents had finally locked up the 22 by that time because the parents weren't stupid. And uh, Glenn gets out the pellet gun and he starts taking aim and he starts pecking away at that thing. And finally he hits the Coke bottle and we're like, mm, I don't know, maybe across the street, like at the brewery away from the, from the Coke bottle. And finally he hits the damn thing. And it goes off like a bomb. And uh, wow, that was cool. Nice. Wow, who knew? You know, science. And uh, but then up the street comes my our buddy, Pete Start. And he's got a piece of a Coke bottle embedded in his jaw right here. 
and he's bleeding like a stuck pig and his parents are like Pete you know they they're grabbing him and hauling him off to the hospital well Pete's got this chunk of glass embedded in his jaw and Pete was like not part of the cool deal okay he was kind of square and though his sisters were cute and they haul Pete off to the hospital and they took out like a chunk of glass out of his jaw and made like, I don't know, I don't know how, I don't even know how you count stitches, a lot of stitches. And he gets this huge scar right across his skull, right across his jaw. So we're feeling a little guilty about this, right? But there's no moral. Except <laughs> there's no moral to the story. But about, oh, about 15 years ago, oh, maybe more than that. How long have we been married, Wendy? A long time? This is before we even met. I ran into Pete on the streets of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and uh, Pete, i like, hey, Pete, how you doing, man? How's, uh, you know, you can't not look at it. <laughs> Needless to say, Pete was kind of cool to me, and uh, he's got a big old scar right here, and there's no moral to that story. <laughs> Thanks, Paul, for telling that story. Our next featured storyteller at the Sunflower Theater, when the theme was family, is Nibel Bjor. So I'm originally from a country, uh, the newest country in the world, called South Sudan in northeast of Africa. And uh, my family migrated to Texas in 1995. And after college, I decided to move to Denver. So my family and I have um, a long history of struggle. Um, when I was maybe two years old, I was taken to go live with my grandmother in the village because um, there had been an ongoing civil war between the North Sudan and the South Sudan. So um, since I was two at the time and my mom also had a three-year-old daughter and a five-year-old brother, the best thing she could do at the time was take us, take me and my sister a walk to go live with my grandma because she couldn't take three small children to a refugee camp in Ethiopia. So um, I move in with my grandma. I get attached to her. Had stopped breastfeeding, but then sudden, all of a sudden, I started breastfeeding again. <laughs> uh, my grandma became my new mother. Uh, but then on her way back to our original uh, um, location where I was born, in a city called Malakal, Malakal, South Sudan, my mother's ship was attacked on her way back to go get my brother so they could travel to Ethiopia um, to a refugee camp called Itang. Her ship was attacked. And so while she was on that ship, um, we heard the news later on that she was on that ship and that uh, we, we didn't know whether she had lived or whether she had survived. So we decided to, to have a funeral for her. Um, so there were there was a ton of food around, and I just didn't understand what was going on. Why, all of a sudden, uh, the uh, my family killed a cow, and uh, we had all this food around. You know, as a two-year-old, 
um, I had no comprehension of of why adults do the things that they do. Um, I wasn't aware that there was a war going on and that sort of thing. Um, so a month goes by, and here we are thinking she was dead. Um, but then we later heard that she had, in fact, survived. She made a decision to jump into the uh, into the Nile River, where the ship was located at the time, and uh, she was able to make it back safely to Malakal. Yay! <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, so as a little girl, I became so attached to my grandma. Um, so, um, but then I had to leave her later on because I was at an age where I needed education and there were schools in the refugee camp in Itang. So um, that I went there, I had to go there. Um, I was reluctant to go, I cried, I did everything I could to stay back in the village. But once again, I was a little girl, maybe five, four, six, I don't know, but um, I, had, I ended up living in the Ethiopian refugee camp for about four years. Ethiopia had their own war four years later, and by this time I was eight years old and I had to walk about seven or eight hundred miles back to Itung, uh, back to South Sudan, and then from there I had to walk again to Kenya. So by this time I had walked about a thousand miles um, as an eight-year-old little girl, and um, this time we, we went to uh, Kakuma refugee camp, and that's where my family received the refugee asylum to relocate to the United States of America. <laughs> it's a great story, right? It's a beautiful story. I did not have any comprehension of English when I moved to Dallas in 1995. I was about 13 years old. Um, I at times had to confront my my mother in English in the English language when she would argue with me in the Dinka language because I just needed her to understand that I had a hard time in school and that being an immigrant wasn't easy and that the only way that I was going to make it in this country was to learn the English language. Um, yeah, eventually learned the English language and. Uh, my parents were proud of me. Um, I'm pretty proud of myself. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> thank you, thank you. But uh, my family in general, you know, we moved here and we all we try to do is make the world a better place. Um, my youngest sister, one of my younger sisters who was seven when I moved here is now 27 or 28, 29, about to be 30, around that age. And she is working for Voice of America as a journalist. <laughs> yeah, and um, sadly, it hasn't always been great. You know, I lost my oldest brother um, in 2017, when he was, 2007, excuse me, when he was only 30 years old. Um, so we are not perfect, and we have our struggles, um, but personally, I have always been the, you know, the person in the family that um, asks my family members to push themselves and to always work hard. But then I have younger sisters who grew up and who looked up to me and my older sister 
and I've had to learn from them too because after so many years in the United States, I still carry this trauma with me and I still blame the war for, for, for everything, every, all the struggles that I've been through. I blame the war for it. I sometimes feel like maybe my peers or you know are smarter than me because they had a better education and so forth but overall um <laughs> i end up you know learning from my younger siblings that uh victimhood is not the way to live your life you can live as a victim or you can celebrate how far you've come and live as a victor <laughs> right <laughs> Yeah, so knowing that I have all these younger siblings who are successful, my youngest sister, who was a few months old, went to UT Austin. You know, she was in the top 10% of her class, and she did it to try to help countries like South Sudan. And she went on to get her government degree, and she is aspiring to become a judge um, eventually. So uh, that is my story. Um, it's sad in many ways, but there is so much victory too. So I am so uniquely proud of that. And I just continue to have faith. Have faith in humanity because I know there are a lot of good people here. So thank you so much for having me tonight. <laughs> Thank you. And I was totally unprepared. I didn't know where to begin. <laughs> Thanks, Nebel, for telling that story. Our final storyteller at the Sunflower Theater at our Story Slam when the theme was family was Zoe Coleman Friedman. My family loves games. There's no other way to put it. We love games. We play them at every possible moment when we're together. Many people can attest to that. Um, my brother and I are six years apart, and growing up, I was always competing with him. So he was that D1 straight A brother who played the bass in the jazz band and also was a, you know English major in college. And I always wanted to be just like him. I'd be in the backyard dribbling around, and he'd take the ball from me, and I'd be like, oh, someday I'll get there. And we're always competing. Um, but we were never that close because our age kept us really different in the life stage we were in and what we were learning. So my junior year of college, I chose to study abroad in Peru. Uh, my brother and I thought, ooh, what a great time for us to have, you know, a chance to travel as siblings, no parents, ooh, um, and go out into South America together. He'd been there for five months a couple years previously, and we thought, great. Let's do it together. So we planned out this itinerary. We had our budget all mapped out, all the bus fares, all the you know, 24-hour rides that we were going to take. It was going to be great. And we fly in. We're there. We're having our you know, Coke and rums and our different uh, margaritas and whatnot every night. And it's this kind of wild adventure. And we're not really sure how we interact. We're siblings that have been together our whole lives. We've played games since we were little. We used to you know, squirt water at each other in the bathtub when we used to bathe together. As little kids, we'd have this kind of competitive energy in high school, and here we are together with our big backpacks traveling in Argentina. It was pretty fun. And one day we go to this tiny little town called uh, Bariloche, 
and it's in Argentina, and we take this bus, and we go on these really windy roads, it's about a two-hour bus ride, and we get to El Boson, and it's this little town with all this art going on. There's a big art festival that day, and we're looking at all the crafts, and there's music playing, and people are face-painted, and we're like, wow, this is so great, and we went on this little day hike. We had lunch at this overlook, and we're coming down this road, and it's a Sunday, middle of the day, beautiful, cars are driving by, bikes are coming past, and my brother and I fall into this beautiful conversation about teaching. He's a teacher, I was becoming a teacher. And we're talking about what does it mean to really care about the work you're doing? What does it mean to really be invested in what you're learning about? And it's the first time I've really felt connected to my brother. So we're talking and we're walking and we're going along and all of a sudden we're alone on this road and all of a sudden we hear this motorcycle come up behind us and it stops about 20 feet in front of us and two guys hats down, face covered, come out, and one of them pulls out a gun and holds it at my brother and says, dame la mochila, give me the backpack. And it was this moment of total, unreal fear of I'm standing there watching and someone point a gun at my brother who's there to protect me, who's there to be my guide, to be my older brother. And my brother looks at him and he tries to kind of reason with him and the guy's just holding the gun and he's nervous and we're nervous and eventually we end up just dropping the backpack and the guy grabs the backpack and takes off. And the thing my brother missed the most from that backpack was the journal he'd kept when he was traveling alone with all of his stories, all of his memories written into that journal with little pieces of paper and note cards and whatnot. And he lost that that day. And so here we are in the middle of this tiny town two hours out of the city that we're staying in with no money, no passports, and no food. And so we have nothing else to do. We get in the back of someone's car that picks us up. We're totally fearful. Luckily, we speak Spanish, and we drive back into town. And we talk to the police. We're like, you know, someone stole our backpack. It has our passports, our money, our credit cards. Like, please help us. And they're like, las turistas. Yeah, of course, this happens all the time, right? And to us, this is the world crashing down to them or one, another tourist that's kept their, all their belongings in one bag like you're never supposed to. So here we are. And my brother and I sit on the curb and we walk the market. We sit on the curb some more. We walk the market some more and we're just totally lost. And somehow we managed to get bus tickets back to this hostel we're staying at. But we have six hours until that bus comes because we're on the last bus of the day. And we have no money and we're starving. So we play a game. So we all pick up pebbles. We have 10 pebbles each. We make a little circle in the sand. And we say, okay, you get 10 shots. How many can you make in there? We do it. He wins. We do it again. Okay, second time. We're shooting pebbles. Then we saw a tree. We're like, okay, you have to hit the tree. It has to bounce back into the ball. Right? And we just keep creating these games. We could go on forever. We spent six hours throwing pebbles at the dirt, and it was awesome. <laughs> we get back on the bus. We have two hours back to this, you know, this winding road all the way back to El Bariloche. And we finally get back, and then we have a 40-minute walk in the dark next to the highway alone. And we are so scared. And so we start playing more games. We play 20 questions. We play contact. We play any game that's going to keep our minds from realizing the gravity of our situation and how scared we are in that moment. And so we walk and we play games all the way back to our hostel. And we get there. And we call my mom. We say, we've been out for about a week and a half, right? All alone, 
two kids, Roman. My parents were like, okay, we're sending you off. Be safe. Last thing they said. So we call my mom, we say, um, hi mom, we're okay. <laughs> Just the last word your parents want to hear when you call them from another country. <laughs> and we explain the situation, we're like, you know, we have no money, we have no passports, we can't actually travel anywhere. Uh, we paid for the night tonight at the hostel, but that's the only night we have. Um, but luckily we have food because there's this free shelf in the hostel where people leave their leftover fruits and their, you know, less little bits of crumbs of pasta and cereal. So my brother's doing all the work um, trying to get, you know, the money transferred from my mom's account to the uh, Western Union Bank in the next city over that we could bike to if we rented bikes for this really small amount of money that maybe we could borrow from a friend we met at the hostel. And it's this whole logistic nightmare. And I'm in charge of making dinner. So I'm like, okay, here we go. So I look at the shelf. I see pasta, there's linguine, there's angel hair, and there's penne. And I was like, great, we can use them all. So we make a big pasta dish, and there's no sauce. So I have this wet pasta in a bowl. Luckily, we could use the stove. So I start looking. Um, there's one little, one of those little like taco sauces you get from McDonald's or something like that. There's one of those. There's some salt and pepper. <laughs> there's dinner. <laughs> so squeeze it on. I shake on this pepper and salt, right? Mix it all together. And my brother and I, you know, finally it's about 11.30 at night. We're exhausted. Our adrenaline's just been pumping all day. We still haven't figured out how we're going to get out of this situation. And it just feels like that moment of kind of being totally unmoored. That you usually you travel with a family, you have an itinerary, you have a hotel planned, you have all of these luxuries that you take for granted with a family. And here we are, family, and we have to figure that out. We have to provide that for ourselves now. And so we sit down at the table and I serve my brother up and serve myself up and kind of look at this pasta a little questioningly. We're like, <laughs> it's food. My brother pulls out a deck of cards. One, one, two, two, three, three, four, four. We've been playing this endless tournament. This whole trip, we've been playing a tournament of this game called Casino. And we're at like, he's won 25 games, I've won 21. Like it's this endless tournament. And he goes, all right, little sis, you're up first. Thank you. Thanks to all the storytellers who shared themselves at our family story slams at the Durango Art Center and Sunflower Theater, and for those venues for providing a space for live storytelling. Thanks as well to Red Scarf Shots Photography, who takes beautiful black and white portraits of our curated storytellers. Find out more at redscarfshots.com. Also, thanks to Cortez Web Services and to Mancus Valley Resources, our 501c3 sponsor. You can listen to all of the previous stories told on the Raven Narrative stages on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. Our next live storytelling events will be on April 19th and 20th, when the theme will be Rites of Passage. For more information and to pitch your story, go to ravennarratives.org.